I know that there are probably some people here in from out of town visiting friends and family for uh, Thanksgiving. I know that probably there are some people that are going to be traveling this week, but on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I've been thinking about Thanksgiving a little bit. Everybody does it a little bit different. Some people really go in for turkey and pumpkin pie and all that traditional stuff, but I was talking to somebody this morning. I said, what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? He said, I'm going to go over to a friend's house, have a big party, but uh, I'm going to take a steak and cook it there for myself because I don't like turkey. <laughs> so that's one way of doing it. Everybody does Thanksgiving differently, but there's one thing that everybody is supposed to do the same. We are all supposed to be thankful. And Thanksgiving is the only holiday that I know of that has a direct command right in the name of the holiday. <laughs> Give thanks. You better be thankful. You better feel thankful and you get to that day and sometimes you feel a little funny about it because even though I think most of us know, most of us feel that gratitude is this essential, beautiful part of life, sometimes we might not feel thankful. We might feel like it's just not in us. We want to be sincere. Thanks shouldn't be something that you have to conjure up in yourself and you think, well, I want to be, but I'm not sure. And even if you're not thinking about Thanksgiving, probably most of you are hearing the same things that I'm hearing. You listen to a TED Talk or you read something, and everybody's telling you how great gratitude is, how it's really wonderful for your well-being. There's a study that came out from the Harvard Medical School recently, and it said gratitude uh, enhances people's relationships, gives them strength to deal with adversity, and improves mental health. So you should have a gratitude attitude right? But what if you don't feel that way? What if you're not feeling a little bit? I want to look at a passage today that oftentimes people read around Thanksgiving. It comes from the gospel of Luke, and it's a story of people getting healed by Jesus. I'm going to give you a summary of the story right now. It goes like this. Jesus is walking along, and he sees 10 lepers, people afflicted with a skin condition so that it made it so that they would have to be excluded from their community, their family, their religious community, everything was taken away from them. They were literally outcasts. And so they see Jesus and they call out to him for help. They ask him for mercy. And when Jesus hears them and when he sees them, he does heal them. And after he heals them, nine of those uh, lepers continue on their way, but one comes back and gives God glory and begins to thank Jesus. And when Jesus sees that one, he says, wait, I healed 10. Where are the other nine? Why did the other nine not come back and give thanks? Have you heard that story? And you can see why people bring this story up around Thanksgiving. It's a story which presumably, about, presumably is about Thanksgiving. But I want to have us look at this story today. Not because it's about Thanksgiving, because I don't think this story is about Thanksgiving. It has Thanksgiving in it. And I hope as we look at it together, we are going to learn how God can grow in our hearts a vision of who he is so that we really do feel grateful. So it has Thanksgiving in it. And I've been praying that as we look at this story together, it will help us to be thankful. But this story we're going to look at is not about Thanksgiving. It is about what everything else in the Bible is about. It is about the love of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus Christ and his persistent, strange, beautiful, invincible love, which will break down every barrier to get to each one of you and to get to our church and to get to this world to make things right. 
So let's look at this story together. But before we do it, let's ask God to help us. Let's ask God to help us to see Jesus in the story. Would you please pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for this story. And we, help you, we ask that you would do what we cannot do. We ask that you would speak and that you would help us to hear your voice. Help us to know how much you love us. And we pray you would help us to love you back. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this story comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. If you brought a Bible along, we're going to start with verse 11. If you didn't bring a Bible along, it's going to show up right behind me here. This begins, this story, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. Here's how it goes. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. We'll stop there. At the very outset of this story, Luke gives us some important information. Before the the meat of the story really kicks in, we find out two things. We find out where Jesus is going, and we find out how he's getting there. Let's look first at where Jesus is going. The place that Jesus is going, according to Luke, is Jerusalem. And I'm showing you this, and, and Luke shows us this for this reason. It's because the life of Jesus has a trajectory, It has an arc. He has a destination in his life. It isn't as if everything that comes in the Gospels, it's easy to read it like this, that it's just happening in a haphazard way. Jesus goes here, Jesus goes there. Parable, miracle, teaching, all these things are going on, and we might think that it doesn't have a kind of of structure to it, but it does. Because over and over and over in all the Gospels, it says, he's going to Jerusalem, He's making his way to Jerusalem. This isn't just one discreet trip that he's making to Jerusalem. This is instead telling us that he has a beginning, a, a place that he starts, Bethlehem, and he has a place that he is going. It's the place he needs to get to, and it's Jerusalem. It says this throughout the Bible, but one of the places that's most distinct is in Luke chapter 9. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. That's a phrase which means unwavering determination. It means courage and constancy to get, I've got to go. I've got to go there. It means a firmness of mind that this is my destination. Jesus' life has a trajectory. It has an arc that he has to get there. Now, why does he have to go to Jerusalem? He tells us why also in the Gospel of Luke. He tells his disciples why. And he tells us too, I want you to listen to this. Then Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. The son of man was a name that Jesus liked to call himself. He's talking about himself there. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted And spat upon, after they have flogged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. I'm not being funny here, but listen, most of the time, you and I, we make our objective, the trajectory of our life to get to things that will benefit us. I'm going to get to this place where I am financially secure. I'm setting it up. I'm making sure that this is what happens. Or I'm going to get to that place where my family is going to look like I want it to look. And I'm going to try to do everything I can to keep it that way. The destination, the purpose, the whole meaning of Jesus' life is to get to Jerusalem so that he can take on the sins of the world, so that he can take on your sin and my sin, so that he can go there, look at this, so I can be spat upon and rejected and killed. But Jesus is going there for the purpose so that he might bear your sins and my sins in his body on the tree so that we might live to righteousness. 
that by his wounds, he wants you to be healed. That Jesus goes to Jerusalem so that you and I wouldn't wander around like sheep, but that we would return to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. And I'm telling you this, Luke wants to start here, so that the context of everything that he does, healing, teaching, parables, it's all done in the context of the purpose that he has for all of us, to reconcile us to God by his death. To go there, he's taking all of us there with him. And he wants to reconcile. So that's where he's going. Now look at how he's going to get there. We're back to verse 11 here. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. He's going to get there by going through Samaria and Galilee. And you and I hear that and we think, these are two more just biblical sounding names. They don't have any resonance with us. But to the first hearers, they would have had a lot of resonance. Galilee was a place that was mostly filled with Jewish folks, about a hundred towns collected in this one sort of, you might call it a county. A lot of them were around the Sea of Galilee, but that's where Jesus grew up. He grew up in a place called Nazareth that was in Galilee. So you hear a story here and you say, Jesus is going along the border. He is walking through the regions of Galilee. That wouldn't have been surprising at all, but it would have been very surprising to hear that Jesus is going through Samaria. Because Samaria, I mean, you know who lives in Samaria, right? The Samaritans. And the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. And the Jews were the enemies of the Samaritans. And there had been not just a generational conflict, but an epoch. It was, it was an era of, of conflict. And it had gone back so far that most people couldn't even remember why they hated each other. They just did. And so if you'd asked a Jew at this time and said, what do you think about the Samaritans? They'd say, oh, the Samaritans, they're wrong. What do you mean wrong? Just wrong, wrong about everything. They're wrong about politics. They're wrong about the scriptures. They don't even have the right Bible. They're wrong about their theology. They're wrong racially. You know they're mixed breed. We stay away from them. And most people at this time would have, if they wanted to go to Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is going, they would have gone the long way around. Stay away from Samaria. Don't go there. It's where the wrong people are. And Jesus is going through Samaria, and we're being told this, and I want you to all hear this, because in his mission, in Jesus' mission, it means that he goes to the places that he's not supposed to go. He goes to the places where the people don't believe the right things, and where the people don't do the right things. And he goes to the places where people are outcast. He goes to the places where people don't feel like they belong to God, or they don't feel like they fit in, or they don't feel like they've done the right thing, or they don't feel like their hearts are matched up right, or they look around and they say, this isn't for me. That's where Jesus goes. And I want you all to know this because there's something in the human heart that says, it's me. I'm a little different than everybody else. I'm more broken. I'm more on the outside. I didn't believe the right things. I've done the wrong things. Nobody knows. And Jesus does know. And that's why he goes to Samaria because every single one of us is a Samaritan in one way or another. Everything, every single one of us is broken in some way. Every single one of us thinks, this isn't for me. And this is why Jesus is shown here, he is going to Samaria. In fact, you know, it even kind of works itself geographically. Uh, Galilee is up here, and Samaria is right here, and Jerusalem is right here, and it's showing us the mission of Jesus. He comes all the way down. He doesn't wait for you to come up. That's not the gospel. Don't think that's the gospel. God is waiting for me to say the right prayer. God is waiting for me to go to church and get my life together. God is waiting for me to quit this habit. 
God is waiting for me to believe that's absolutely a lie from the devil. Don't believe it. Jesus comes all the way down to people who don't believe the right things and who haven't said the right prayers. Jesus comes all the way down to Samaria. That's where he hangs out. I mean, and I don't even know if we think that this is actually true. I mean, I don't even know if I believe that it's true. Where do you expect Jesus to be? You think, well, Jesus is at church. You know, they're doing the building campaign and they're making it fancy for him. He's going to hang out there for sure. That's right. He is going to be here. But here's what's also true. Jesus is in the places you do not expect him to be. Jesus is at your community group and Jesus is at your church. But is Jesus at the rehab? Is Jesus hanging out at the bar? Is Jesus hanging out in your lonely room where you feel like nobody else understands the pain or the despair that you're going through? That's where Jesus is. Jesus is at the mosque. Jesus is at the far reaches of what political uh, folks you don't like. It's them over there. I don't like them. That's where Jesus is. Jesus goes to the places and the people that you and I deem to be the farthest away from God. That's what everybody in that culture would have said. That's where Jesus wouldn't be. That's exactly where he's at. And it's not only the trajectory geographically, it's also the one that he lives out in his life. You know, Christmas is coming up. One of my very favorite carols is Once in Royal David City. It says, he came down to earth from heaven, the one who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable and his cradle was a stall with the poor and oppressed and lowly lived on earth, our savior holy. That's who your savior is. He comes all the way down from Galilee. That's his home all the way down to wherever you're at, whatever darkness, whatever prison house of sin or suffering or despair that you live in, that's where he comes. So that's where he's going and that's how he gets there. That's the first verse. Dave Macaron asked me before, he said, how long is the sermon gonna be? I said, I don't know. We're only on the first verse now. So everybody get comfortable. Uh, We're gonna be here I'm just kidding. You'll get home to your pot roast. Do you still do pot roast? You should do pot roast. All right, next verse. As Jesus entered a village, 10 lepers approached him, keeping their distance. These lepers, we don't know exactly what disease they have. There's a disease that we call leprosy now, which is called Hansen's disease. It's the thing that we think of first when it comes to leprosy. We don't know that they had that or not, but what we do know is what was required for lepers, and it was hard. It meant that they had to live outside of the camp. They couldn't live in community with anybody else. That's what Numbers chapter five says. The second thing that was true of all lepers, and you see it here too, is that they had to call out and cry out. Whenever they got near to anybody who was well, they would have to cover their mouth, and they'd have to say, unclean unclean so that anybody who saw or heard them coming would get clear of them. And this is what these folks are doing here. You can see them stay. It says, keeping their distance. When Jesus goes into this village, they don't go in and they do cry out, but they don't cry out unclean. Look at what they cry out. This is wonderful. Watch this. Verse 13, they called out saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. That is a perfect prayer. That is a perfect prayer. If you ever want to know what to pray, here it's given to you by these people who are not allowed to be in the synagogue and they're not allowed to be in the temple and they're not allowed to get taught by the Bible teachers and where they have learned this, God gave them this knowledge of a perfect prayer through their own need and their own desperation. Sometimes that's how God reaches. 
That's sometimes how you learn what it is God's calling you for. It's your own poverty, spiritual or otherwise. And they call out to God with this deep spiritual insight and they ask Jesus for mercy. And there's a lot of debate around this passage about how was it that these 10 lepers knew to go to Jesus? How did they know to go to him and ask him for mercy? How did they know to call him master? There's a couple answers, I think. One would be possibly that they knew, maybe in the, the community of folks who did have leprosy, that he'd healed some of them. In Luke chapter 5, he already had healed a leper. So maybe it was going around. Hey, there's this man. He can heal you. But there's another way that I think maybe they recognized him. Maybe. I wonder if maybe these lepers began to see Jesus, and when they saw him, they saw him in the same way that the prophet Isaiah did. I wonder if when they saw him, they saw through the lens and with the eyes of the prophet Isaiah, because when the prophet Isaiah talks about seeing Jesus, this is what he says. He says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. Doesn't that sound like somebody who has leprosy? And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Now listen, I'm not saying that Jesus had leprosy. He certainly did not. He wouldn't be able to come and go in the synagogues and the temples. But here's what I do know. That there was something about the character and heart and and just the being of Jesus that somehow radiated what it means to know that you are despised and rejected by others. He knew down to his very core what it's like to have other people look away from you, to feel so sick, to have heaped insults on you, to to be turned away from. He knew that down to his very soul. And I'm telling you this because as I look out at this group, I know this is true, that many of you have felt physical or spiritual or emotional affliction, which has dragged you down to depths that you wouldn't even be able to articulate that you've lived in a certain kind of abyss. And when you feel that way, when you experience that, and and many of us have, one of the things that feels best, one of the things that feels like it's the lone source of comfort that you could have is if somebody else knows what it's like. Have you ever been to a party or, or, or gone someplace to a gathering and you meet up with somebody and they know what it's like to be you in some sort of way? Like you're at a party somehow and you end up talking with somebody and they've been through a really hard divorce too. You think, ah, yeah, you know what it's like. I know what it's like not to be with my kids or I know what it's like to have everything taken away. And that person, and all of a sudden, you're like, they know. Or, or you meet up with somebody and they lost a job too. They were without work. And you get to talking and you want to talk with that person because they know just what it's like. Somebody that's lost a parent or a sibling or a child, you want to be with that person because they know what it's like. And Jesus Christ knows exactly what it's like, whatever affliction that you have ever had. The gospel is that Jesus comes down and he, again, doesn't wait for you to come up to him. He comes down and experiences things just like you and I have. Rejection of family and parents and his religious community and isolation and loneliness and the political brokenness of environment. He knows it all so that when you go alongside him, if you pray to him, and I hope that you do, that you're going to be praying to somebody who knows exactly what it's like. I want you to know that you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with you, but who is like you in every way. And because of that, 
You should draw close to the throne of grace and be helped in your time of need. You all have a time of need, and there is no better place to go than this one who knows exactly what it's like to be in the lowest depths. So these lepers are our teachers. They call out to Jesus for mercy. They keep being our teachers. They're good teachers because they call out and call Jesus master too. Look at this. They called out saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They call him master. You know, this is the only place in all of the gospels that anybody calls Jesus master besides one of his disciples. These, these lepers are great teachers. They're showing us that Jesus is not just somebody to call out to for mercy. He is that. And I hope whether it is your spiritual or emotional or physical healing that you need, I hope you call out to him for mercy. But they're showing us all that we should call out to him as our master too. That he's not somebody that's just gonna fix your problems and then that's it. He's not gonna somebody that's gonna be bailing you out and then the relationship's over. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow him on this path that is life. He himself is life. And so to call out to him for mercy, you also need to call him master. And many of us probably don't want to do that. It's a little easy to try to think that you're going to be your own master or not have a master at all, especially those of you who are Americans. Who here grew up in the 70s? Do you remember Schoolhouse Rock? Do you remember that? Remember what they, that song in Schoolhouse Rock? No more kings. We don't want any kings. I mean, our whole, we have a constitution that's founded on that. We don't want people bossing us around. We'll be our own master, thank you very much. But it's impossible to live without a master. As the great Robert Zimmerman once said, you've got to serve somebody. You're going to be serving somebody, and it might be that you're going to serve. Who's going to be your master? Is your own uh, pleasure going to be your master? I'm going to do everything that I can to have great experiences, and wonderful, emotional, that's going to be your master. Or it might be the opinions of the other people around you. I want other people to think that I'm okay, I got everything together. That might be your master. It might be financial security. I'm going to work this hard, I'm going to work this long, and I'm going to set it up, and I have the right investments. That'll be your master. That'll determine what your calendar looks like. Everybody has a master. You can't live without one. And these lepers are saying, the very best master that you can have is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he's going to give healing and wholeness. He comes all the way down to save you and be with you. So you should follow him in this path of life. And again, he is life. Verse 14. When they saw, when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Jesus hears them, he sees them, and he tells them to go to the priest. And that's a little strange. It's not strange that he tells them to go see the priest. Because at this time, the priest was like sort of the intersection of a a pastor and a health inspector. Because if you had leprosy or some other disease that made it so that you were an outcast, to get back into the community, you had to go and get sanctioned by the priest. You had to come back, show yourself, I've been clean for this many days, can I come back? And the priest would say yes or no. So it's not really strange in some ways that Jesus is saying, go show yourself to the priest. What's strange about it, do you see the timing here? He's giving them a command about something that isn't true yet. So he says, go and show yourself to the priest. And you can imagine they'd be like, "Uh, I'd rather not, I have leprosy. But he tells them to go obey him before what he's telling them to obey about comes true. He says, you just should obey. 
He says, I'm the master and I'm telling you to go and do this. And I'm not asking you to determine whether or not you think it's smart to do this. Just go do it. And here's where it gets pretty tough because most of the time when it comes to anything in our life, job, family, friends, but certainly our relationship with God, we want to say, this is what God's telling me to do. Does this make sense? Is this going to work out for me okay? You know, Jesus says, if you want to be great, you should be a servant. And most of the time I hear that, I say, is anybody else around me being a servant? Well, if he would be a servant, then I'll be a servant to him. And I don't want to be a servant to her at all, but I guess I should do it. I don't know. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You just be a servant. And you don't wait to figure out if it makes sense. The command is given. And then in the obedience of the command, something great happens. Or here's another one. Jesus says, you should go into your room, shut the door and pray. Period. And you think, I don't have spiritual feelings right now. I don't really feel like it. I just did something really wicked about 25 minutes ago. Uh, I don't want to show up like that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to. And Jesus says, go and pray. And in the obedience to the command, something might happen. That's what happens for these lepers. Now, I don't, don't get it twisted here. This doesn't mean that if we obey God, then God is going to uh, give us good things. And if we obey God, then he's going to love us. You already see that Jesus has come all the way down and he's there. But it's also the truth here that he knows that he is the one who can lead you on the path of life. It's only him as the master that you can experience the life that he wants to give you. And so Jesus comes down and he is the one who who gives them this healing. And uh, let's take a look at verse 15 now. When one of them finds out, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. In the doing of the command, they all are healed, all of them. And then one of them looks down and he decides to turn around and go back to Jesus And it says that he glorifies God and he gives thanks to Jesus. Now, this last week, I listened to a whole bunch of sermons on this passage. I read a whole lots of books. And you know, the nine that keep going with their lives, they kind of, they get a bad rap. Everybody thinks they're kind of crummy. They say they're awful. They didn't come back and give Jesus thanks. And it's why this passage gets trotted out a lot at Thanksgiving time. In fact, lots of the sermons are called like, don't be the nine. Or are you one of the ones who gives thanks? Or would I mess that up or whatever? That's why I didn't name that sermon this, this today. But look at, I want you to see something. What are the nine doing? They're doing what Jesus told them to do. He said, you should go show yourself to the priests. And ostensibly, that's what they're doing. But the one is also obeying Jesus. He's coming back and showing himself to the priest. The one true high priest is right there before him. So he thinks, I'm not going to walk all the way to Jerusalem. I'm not going to go to Mount Gerizim. I'm not going to go to my local synagogue. I know that the one true high priest of heaven is standing right before me, and I'm not going to miss this opportunity. He is standing before the one true great high priest that every single one of us has. Every single one of us has this high priest. Each one of you do. Here's your homework for tonight. I want you to learn about the, the priesthood of Jesus. It's Hebrews 7. It says Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That means he's never going to die. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Isn't that great? He is able to save to the uttermost. He is the great high priest. Let's keep going. Verse 15. 
Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He comes back before his great high priest and he praises God with a loud voice. And this is the verse that sort of haunted me this week. It has haunted me to see that this man praises God with a loud voice. And the reason is because I sometimes struggle to praise God with a loud voice. It's not something that comes naturally to me. I stand over here on the side and I sort of mouth the words a little bit. Sometimes I feel it and I raise my hands up a little bit. Sometimes I'm a little bit louder. I know that this leper is my teacher. He's showing me what I should be doing. I know that Psalm 33 says, sing to him a new song with loud shouts. I know that Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. But I get anxious a little bit. I feel a little nervous about praising God with loud shouts. Part of it is I'm afraid what people around me will think. I think that they'll think that I'm just hamming it up or that I'm trying to be Mr. More Spiritual than everybody else or he's just the pastor. He's just doing this because, you know, he's trying to instruct us. I get nervous about what people will think or sometimes I look in my own heart and I think I don't really feel like giving a loud shout. I'm not sure this is really me and so I don't do it. And I know that I'm not the only one that this is true of. And I'm going to put a finer point on this. And I'm going to speak to a specific group of people in this room right now. I want to speak to the men that are here. Because I think that there's something about being a man, maybe specifically in sort of an American, maybe a white American culture that says, tamp your emotions down. Don't cry out too much. Keep it calm. Don't look strange and funny with your hands up. Don't yell out. And so a lot of us just kind of quiet. We mouth the words and we wait for it to be over. And you know what's happening when that happens? Our young people are seeing us. They're seeing men like me. They're seeing me not really sing too loud, and they're learning that's what you do during music at church. Don't sing too loud. Don't lose control. Don't be too over the top. And I want you to know that I'm saying this right now. I'm not trying to shame anybody or guilt anybody because I'm the one who needs to learn this more than anybody. But here's the truth. The one who's missing out when they're not raising a loud shout is me. I'm the one that's missing out on that relationship with God's love and being able to be in relationship with him. Look, all 10 get cleansed. All 10 get healed. You don't have to raise your hands and, and give a loud shout for God to heal you or love you. All 10 get healed. But it's only the one that comes back that gets to be in relationship with Jesus and be loved and express love and receive it and give it and something to grow. And so here we're going to bring it in for a landing now. Look at one more voice or one more uh, verse. Then one of the, uh, he prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Here we find out that our teacher all along was the person that we don't think knows anything about God's love at all, the one who is wrong, the one who is racially, culturally, socially, emotionally wrong. He's the one that's showing us that when it comes to being thankful, it's got to come not from looking at the people around you. It doesn't come from even looking inside yourself. It comes from looking at the one who does good things. So this Thursday, it doesn't matter whether you're at a table with lots and lots of people. You might be by yourself. You might be in a car. You might be in a room by yourself. I want you to see and know that you have a great high priest and he has done great things for you. He has forgiven every single one of your sins, the one that's come before and the ones that you're going to commit. He is in the midst of healing this whole world. He has healed you physically and emotionally and socially. 
And even in those things that he has not healed you at, he has promised to walk with you all the way through the valley of the shadow of death to get you to the place where every tear will be wiped away from every eye and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when that day comes, we will have great joy in lifting up our voices around the throne to lift up and lift up our voices in love. Dear friends, we have a God to give thanks to. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, to be our shepherd, our king, and our high priest. And we pray now that you would help us to be thankful, not because of what we think we should do, but what we're allowed to do by being in a relationship with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.